Welcome to the Better Birth Podcast. My name's Erin and I'm a hypnobirthing and antenatal instructor, birth activist and all-round birth geek. In this podcast, I chat to experts in the field of pregnancy and birth, debunking myths around birth, diving into the research around maternity care and exploring what is it that means you're more likely to have a positive birthing experience. If you enjoy this podcast, do feel free to buy me a coffee and fund my caffeine habit. Link to my buy me a coffee page is in the podcast info. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Better Birth Podcast. Today I'm talking to the wonderful Dr. Rachel Reed, who is a midwife, author, researcher, and consultant and speaker. Um, and I'm really excited to have her on the podcast today because I have been reading your book uh, recently and I'm really uh, thrilled to be able to talk to you about the topic of your, your latest book. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. I've been I've been waiting for ages for this to record this podcast and, and for, for purely selfish reasons so that I can actually just talk to you about stuff that I, I find really exciting. So I am really I'm really pleased that you've agreed to come on the podcast. Um, I mentioned that you are an author and you've written two books, um, the Why Induction Matters book and also uh, Reclaiming Childbirth as a Rite of Passage. And that's the, the second one is the one that I kind of want to focus on for the, the topic of the, was the start of our podcast. Um, because I'm really interested when I started reading that book, that the first couple of chapters and, and where you covered the history of childbirth um, is a real eye-opener, eye I think, for, for anybody who is pregnant um, or works in, in birth world. Um, and I really wanted to talk to you about you know, how, how did we get to the point that we are now where we, we have such a medicalized version of birth? Because that's not what birth used to be like, you know, going back in history, is it? No, no. And it's, it's been a long process, but it's actually been fairly short time in history that birth has, has moved into medicine and become medicalized. So, you know, if we look at the, the scale of it, it's actually a really short time in human history. And I put that chapter in, I thought about it and I kind of, when I was putting this book together, because as you know, the, the last part of the book is really just a deep dive into the physiology and the journey of physiological birth and the practices that happen around that. But I felt this part of that first part of the book was really necessary for you to understand why we're where we are. You know, mm -hmm. when people say to me, why is there such a high induction rate? Why is it? This is why. And it's, you know, it makes perfect sense because the system is not set up to promote and support physiology or to be woman-centered. That was never what it was set up to do, the, you know, the modern maternity system. And that's why, so it makes perfect sense. So that's kind of why I wrote that chapter. And I think we've forgotten, and part of reclaiming is looking back and seeing what it is that we need to reclaim and, and what was lost. And, you know, birth moved from, and, you know, the first chapter is all about that. It's how the birth moved from really a female-centered, um you know events that happened within a community and that was um really kind of overseen by what adrian wilson who wrote about um the middle ages in particular in england which is where i focused because the modern maternity services are really have grown out of europe you know because during colonization those ideas were taken and spread around so that's what we're with we're with that kind of started in europe um, and it was really the female collective, um, as Adrian Wilson calls it, the female collective culture of birth that, that held the whole culture together. And it was, an, you know, birth has always been dangerous, but the way in which we've seen and perceived danger and managed it has shifted. So historically, when women were birthing, they were in this transitional phase. It was, it was dangerous. Women and babies died. They still do. Um, and what was enacted around them to protect them was all around the, the ideas that were portrayed to women was that, you know, birth is a, a normal event. Sometimes it goes wrong. And when it does, it, there was a lot of um, rituals around the problems being coming from the outside of the woman. So spirits or the environment wasn't correctly set up. So it was all about managing the environment, whether that's spiritual environment or physical environment, to, 
protect the woman while she did the journey. Mm. And then we've had a complete flip, you know, where now primarily the risk and the danger is considered to be arising from within the woman's body. Yeah. The risk is the woman. And then we do all of the inter these interventions around the woman to protect her baby primarily and her from her body. Yeah. And a lot of those interventions and actions we're doing are actually the things that are then causing the problems that we then do more interventions to fix. So, yeah, so, you know, long story short, history went from birth that was very much women's business and and behind closed doors. And then in Europe, the midwives, who, the, who were also the wise women, the, the healers were persecuted you know, for 500 plus years. Um, because their knowledge came into conflict with the rising physicians. So there was this real kind of turf war around who, who had the legitimate knowledge around healing. Um, and physicians kind of connected into the church at the time and you know, basically outlawed women healing and women's knowledge. And the only little bit that we managed to keep was childbirth, because that was just something that, you know, women who had bodies that were carnal and dirty and, and earthy, that was their business and men didn't want to be involved in in that business yeah. and it wasn't until physicians got in interested in childbirth which was only a few hundred years ago um, and started learning about childbirth and birth was still happening in the home with midwives and gossips which are gossips is god sibs which is the collection of women that the that knew the woman really well so her sisters and mother are friends it was like a real kind of ceremonial um, group activity birth you know all these women would turn up and then you'd have the midwife whose role was probably more like the obstetrician to be honest you know overseeing and that was the term that Adrian Wilson used this ceremony in that the care and the kind of loving and the, the a lot of the practical things was done by that group of women who knew the woman mm -hmm. and the midwife who would have been known to the community was very much making sure things were progressing well that you know, the woman was well and the baby was well and if not then she had these skills and you know interventions that she would bring in to to divert that and then when physicians got interested in birth they were really only seeing pathology because nobody called them in unless there was a pathology you know they could they'd now developed instruments that could rescue babies so midwives would call them in if they couldn't fix the problem and then women also got transferred into hospital. So you'll see a lot of the early texts about birth are actually just literally dead women's torsos that have been, you know, um, what do they call it when they pull them apart? The anatomists dissect in order them. dissect exactly dissected women's torsos with dead babies. And that's how they learned the anatomy and physiology of birth. And as we yeah. all know, who, you know, it's a little bit more dynamic than. And that, there's a lot of things there's not just the torso and the womb and the baby doing the thing so that's where the, the learning came from and then midwives were pulled from the community where they were still for a very long time um they were then regulated out of existence basically um medicine pulled nurses in because nursing arose from medicine and they got together with nurses and basically created regulatory systems where midwives couldn't be midwives without being nurses first which meant they had to be medically trained and they got pulled into hospital and we had the midwives pulled from the community where they were always you know there's this idea that oh you know now we have all this pressure and we have to meet the needs of things outside of the woman and the baby that's always been the case because you know midwives have always been accountable to religion to state to the community now they're accountable to medicine that's mm. we've just changed changed bosses i guess um and that's where we're at now is we've created this system based on understandings of pathology where women's bodies don't work and medicine fixes the bodies and that's what set up the entire system that we have now that's yeah. still the underlying the underlying beliefs yeah and that's it's not just the system that's changed, it's our mindsets that have changed as well, isn't it? Because culturally, we have been conditioned to fear birth and believe that the medical setting is the best setting to be in, to give birth, when in, when in reality, it's not, because it doesn't yeah. facilitate or support physiological birth, um, which is, is such a shame because I see so many people, so many people discount home as a, as a, 
as an option for a birthplace. Um, and they don't realise, I think, what they're entering into when when they turn up at that hospital um, and, and the, the power struggle, I guess, that they are submitting themselves to when, when they go into a medical setting, um, which I find really heartbreaking. Yeah, and, and, you know, physiological birth does happen in medical settings, but it's in spite of, and it's such low numbers, you know, I know the UK is similar to Australia, yeah. and they're not even counting physiology, they're counting, you know, they're not actually counting how many babies come out of women's vaginas without surgical instruments mm -hmm. they're counting interventions you have to kind of go around that to get to the numbers and we're looking at about 20 percent of healthy well women get their babies out of their vaginas without intervention to speed their labor up start their labor or mm -hmm. to get their baby out it's just you know are we really saying that 80 percent of women are unable to birth in a matter of generations yeah it's crazy. Uh, yeah, it is crazy. And this is this is the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about, I guess, because it kind of naturally leads on to the topic of induction and be, and the inability to be able to spontaneously begin labour. Um, and I've in fact, even today on my, on my Instagram, I had somebody message me saying I've been told I have to be induced um, at 40 weeks because um, if I don't, um, my labour won't start. Um, and I and I won't give birth naturally. And I was I literally had steam coming out of my ears. I thought, what a ridiculous thing to say to somebody that they have to be induced by a certain point or their baby won't won't be born. No one has a twenty year old fetus in that you know twenty one year old baby in their uterus. Your, your baby will be born. It's a it's a and it's a it's a it's a case of weighing you know chances of various different outcomes, right? But the actual risk and I don't really like the word risk but the, the risk is 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 very small um you know going over, I'm doing air quotes I'm conscious this is a podcast people can't <laughs> see my hand gestures but you know um uh going overdue um it just it, it find it massively frustrating um and I don't understand how we've got to the point where we feel the need to be forcing babies out prematurely before they are ready how have we got to this point because it seems completely bonkers well it's around it is around and and you're right the word risk is really loaded mm. so historically it was more kind of danger was kind of more the word was used and now we're into this whole risk safety thing which just reflects our culture as a whole doesn't it you know we are not tolerant of chances of things happening you know we want even, you know, we're, we're really risk conscious, and I'm doing quotes now, mm -hmm. um, you know, to the point where schools are stopping children from climbing trees in case they fall off and break their arm. Like, well, they're gonna, they're gonna probably be learn more by climbing the tree that, oh, and that's just translating into the maternity services. And if you've, if you've got a really risk in quote adverse um, service, that is only looking at particular risks mind, you know, they're not risk adverse when it comes to hemorrhaging or trauma or mental health. They're not risk adverse because, you know, we've got a third of women coming out with considering their birth to be traumatic experience. Yep. That's not a risk. The risk is the big kind of, you know, the, the big pick, the big risk things like, you know, death. That's, that's kind of what they're counting. So they're looking at generalized risk stats for a generalized population. And they're looking at risks that are less than 1%, you know, whichever way you play it, whether you say, okay, well, the woman's older or the woman, it always is less than 1%, you know, for up to 43 weeks, you're still less than 1%. But there is generally statistically an increased risk of stillbirth mm -hmm. compared to it 39 weeks. And that's what it all hinges on. It's general applying it to an individual. Nobody's kind of going, well, why is, why does that happen? Um, would it happen for this woman? Is this woman naturally a gestator to 43 weeks? What did her mother do? What do her sisters do? You know? Yes, I this is a, a really valid point. Yeah. Yeah, I looked after a woman yeah. who, um, for a home with who's actually a doula. Um, and she just, or we didn't even expect to go have a baby before 42 weeks because her, in, she was from another country and her mother had um, had her baby at 44 weeks. So in his, his whole family, the women in her family just had babies yeah. at 43, 44, mm -hmm. 42 was like early gestation. So we weren't worried about that at all. Mm 
Mm. Um, I didn't expect to see the baby until 42 weeks, which is, you know, when she had the baby. Um, And there was no dramas. Having said that, you know, if I was caring for a woman who regularly had her babies at at 38 weeks, that was her gestation. And now we're getting to 42 weeks. Mm. Then I'm starting to think, well, why is this baby not coming? What's different here? You know, and then you start to look at it. But that's not how systems work. They Mm. don't apply to individuals. They're just general. Yeah. And it's, you know, we need to stop the risk of stillbirth and the risk of litigation is huge. You know, a lot of things are implemented on the risk of litigation. If we don't do this, we'll get sued. And no, and they don't get sued for doing things. They get sued for not doing things. You know, mm-hmm. it's all about the woman's body's dangerous. You need to do the thing because if you don't do the thing, you're not saving her and the baby from herself. Yeah. And this happens, you know, when maternity care because of the way it was set up and particularly antenatal care which really came into play because we'd lost so many men at war and we needed to increase the population we needed a healthy population in Europe and that's where antenatal care came in as it is now which is basically surveillance so you're surveilling the fetus all the way through doing tests and checks to make sure that the fetus is healthy Mm-hmm. um and well and we've added in you know mental health screening for the woman and things which all just then falls off once the baby's born yep. so we have this you know um ritualistic you know regular meetings with the woman where we are transmitting values to her and beliefs which are that this is a dangerous journey and your body's potentially dangerous and we are the external experts who can mm-hmm. measure and assess and tell you about your well-being so by the time the woman gets to the end of pregnancy of course she's open to being told well your body's also not going to be able to birth your baby because mm-hmm. you know we are the experts in when that should happen and how it should happen and whether your baby's well we've kind of grew we do you know i call it grooming in the book we do this grooming to the point where of course women just go along with what we tell them mm-hmm. by the time they're about to have their babies because we have eradicated their self-trust and their belief in themselves yeah. And you mentioned the, the, the point of litigation. And um, when I read that um, CTG, so cardiotography, is not evidence based, and I learned, I read why we use CTG so regularly, that that blew my mind. And I think it would it would genuinely shock a lot of pregnant people if they realised how many different medical interventions we we offer or we recommend that are not evidence-based. Um, do, do you want to talk a little bit about CTG and why it's not, how it kind of came about? Well, it just came about alongside all the other interventions that were brought in. So once women were birthing in hospital under medicine, then as medical technology developed, then it was used because it was thought to be, well, of course, this is a good idea to do this thing to, you know, to um knock women out into twilight sleep to put ctg monitors on because we've got this equipment and it wasn't until the 90s that really research took off particularly in obstetrics it was like way behind it actually won award for being the least evidence-based um medical speciality um, and when they then started doing the research it was too late so now we've, we're still in the situation where we're doing research to demonstrate that it's okay to stop doing a thing it was implemented without any research it's just mm-hmm. mind-blowing mm-hmm. and ctg was the same it's like we'll implement ctg because look this this will tell us whether or not the baby's in problems and then we can intervene and save the baby um and it, you know, it sounds perfectly legitimate and you know sounds perfectly rational you see this nice picture of baby's heart rate and and what's happening and and you get this sense of safety because that's you know and that's why I kind of liken all of this to rituals in the book that, you know, that it is very soothing to look at the comp- computer and it tells you the baby's well and everyone can relax. And of course, now we're getting some really good research around CTGs and it doesn't make a difference to outcomes. All no. that it does is increase the chance that the woman will have a cesarean by up to 30%. So all we're doing is increasing the likelihood that this woman's going to have surgery but we're not improving the outcomes for her baby. Mm. But to now withdraw that is just, it's not, it's absolutely embedded in culture now. Yeah. And, you know, we feel safe looking at the machine that's telling us that the baby's safe, it, you know, because we're living in a culture that's telling us, like, you know, I feel, you know, I'm looking after a woman, even rationally, I know this is 
not telling me anything, I'm still reassured by looking at what is considered a normal heart rate, even though I know yeah. rationally yeah. that that's not helpful. Yeah. Um, and also we've got to consider that, you know, a CTG machine, even according to guidelines, should not be put on a woman who is not, you know, is having a physiological healthy birth. Mm. It's not. All it's going to do is disrupt that. You know, I would I would argue that once you put, once you are intervening, particularly with induction, once you've got those medications going in that are, you know, syntocinone or pitocin as it's called in America, is the leading cause of fetal distress. That's the, the, the most, you know, most likely thing to cause fetal distress yeah. in a labor. So I would say, you know, you're doing that intervention, you kind of owe it to the woman and baby to have a CTG monitor yeah. because you're doing something dangerous. And even though, yeah, I know it's not, even with high risk birth, it's not great. Mm. It's something, you're doing something to try and mitigate the risks that you're putting yeah. onto the woman. But that machine should never be put on a woman who is having a physiological birth because you're now diverting the birth. Yeah, and, and I think it applies to many other things as well. I mean, you know, when I when I teach my clients, we talk, we get to the point where we talk about vaginal exams, for example. Um, how useful is a vaginal exam if labor's progressing and there is no signs of any issue? It's probably just going to hinder the progression of labor more than it's going to do any good. But we 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 come we come to expect to have to submit to a vaginal exam because that's what you do when you get to hospital is have your mm. cervix checked. And they tell you how you're progressing, even though it doesn't, it's absolute bollocks. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, no, you can swear, it's fine. <laughs> it, it's not true. And like, you know, the reason that we do, so vagina examinations have always been around, like midwives have done them for millennia, mm. but they were done when there was a concern. Yeah. So they were done in that this is now not a physiological birth we've got a complication or a pathology and I want to see what's happening in there yeah. and what you know what's going on in there for the baby and you can get that information you know, is the baby coming down with their brow first etc and now we've moved it to using it for assessing labor progress and again with no evidence in fact we've got research showing it doesn't work because bodies work differently patterns of labor are differently just like menstrual patterns are different just any oh. pattern of the body is different for different people yeah. and so what we get into is using this tool that doesn't tell us anything to try and fit women through a time frame that was again set to meet the needs of hospital settings not not to reflect what actually happens physiologically you know we, we expect certain patterns of contractions and opening of the cervix so women get plotted on this and 50 percent of women having their first baby will not meet the perceived you know the time frames that are put in place so that tells me that the time frames are wrong but instead mm -hmm. we say the women are wrong so we'll intervene to get them to fit the time frames yeah. and we'll use vaginal examinations as the assessment in order to say yes you're progressing no you're not and that's not actually how things work. You know, it's not about the cervix opening. It's actually about the fundus forming, which pulls the cervix up. So that's just like a kind of side effect of what's mm -hmm. going on in the uterus. But the, and we've just lost, because we don't see physiology, we don't understand it. Um, and we've now got all this research and, you know, science, you know, speaking that language around what physiology is and how it would look. But we don't see it, so we don't know it and we don't teach it you know I've still got text I'm in the middle of um creating a course on childbirth physiology because I thought I need to do a course to learn to do a course because I've got a bigger course in mind centered around the book <laughs> and I thought what is needed and I, do you know what's really needed just basic physiology like not textbook version because it's actually bullshit the textbook still because they've just all they do in the do a textbook is just republish it and maybe change a few diagrams but it's still centered on this idea of you know of particular contraction patterns in the cervix dilating in a particular way and the you know the, I'm having to draw my own diagrams because I can't actually find diagrams that in that show you what really happens mm. so I think that's a core problem is we've actually lost we need to reclaim an understanding of physiology and how do we do that when we're not seeing it 
Yeah. And when the textbooks don't even include it, like how do we reclaim that physiology? So that's the first course is just that, just a course on childbirth physiology. Um, beyond I think the it's, it's definitely needed, definitely, because I, uh, so I, I run a course for um, hypnobirthing basics for, for midwives because I think the vast majority massively, unless they, they are a hypnobirthing instructor, they massively misunderstand what hypnobirthing is. So I, I, I've, I've, I've only done one so far, but I had such good feedback. I'm going to run them regularly. Um, and I finished the, the first course with uh, a group of midwives and trade and student midwives on Sunday. Um, and they were, they were, I, I, I kind of, I was really worried I was going to be teaching them to suck eggs because they're midwives and they're trainees midwives. And we talked about, you know, the psychology and we talked about the brain and the hormones and how mindset affects the physiology and birth environment. And I talked about birth positions and the relation of baby and the pelvis and the ligaments and all this kind of stuff. Um, and they were, they were blown away. And it just, it just, it just, it just blows my mind that they, they don't get taught this stuff because it's, to, to me as a hypnobirthing instructor this is like the fundamentals of understanding birth is understanding the birth environment and how to facilitate oxytocin and you know all of this kind of stuff so it just it just it's crazy yeah and even if, when you teach it you know so we teach it our uni they're then not seeing it so it's really hard. like you know as a mm. student midwife your biggest influence is you know the actual clinical area the midwives you're working with you know the real life and that's again in quotes I often get told I don't teach real life midwifery it's like well I was a real life midwife for many years yeah. including in hospitals and, and home birth um, in the last years um so if they're not seeing it and then also if you if the practice is overlaid on a misunderstanding then you're constantly disrupting it so you know even just the as you know birth is as you say it is actually hormonally driven if you can get the environment right for the hormones which means the environment is right for you know psychology emotional spirit all of that mm -hmm. then the rest will work yeah. um but what they're seeing even just on that simple level is that's disrupted so you have a woman coming into an environment she doesn't know with people she doesn't know talking to her activating a neocortex you mm. know doing clinical assessments that then raise her anxiety around is the baby well what what are you finding then they're assessing and telling her well you're not very far in your labor when she feels like she's already it's we just so they're not so you can teach it but when you're not seeing it it's then very difficult to hold on to that teaching mm. yeah and again like i i one of my clients is a midwife and she did a hypnobirthing course because she was pregnant and she did a hypnobirthing course with me. And again, I was really worried. I was like, well, you know, because you, you, you're doing this, you're supporting women in labour day in, day out. And she said, no, well, I, I know this stuff. But she said, it's really good to have a refresher because I don't see it. <laughs> I don't see it every day because I'm working in a hospital. Um, and it just, you know, the, the hospital environment is not, set up that way to facilitate oxytocin um no it's, it's set up to facilitate the movement of the woman coming is basically the you know the money because yeah. that follows the woman through the system so mm. there's only x amount of hours that are funded on birth suite and an x amount of hours funded on and as a midwife you've got to you know, I used to always get into trouble in hospital because my women weren't off birth suite and into the postnatal ward on time and my rooms were messy. So, <laughs> you know, it's about that smooth running of a system and yeah. and it's really hard to kick back against that because if mm -hmm. you if you do, one, you're not efficient because you're not getting your woman round onto the postnatal ward in time. Um, and that's where all of the measurements and the indicators are on whether or not you're functioning well as a, a midwife. It's not about did that woman have a birth experience where she's walking away and she's set up for motherhood? That's not because you're not seeing the woman again if you're working in a fragmented system. It's just, you know, 12 hour shift, get that bit done and then move on. We've fragmented it, which is why you see better outcomes and improvements for things like the midwifery group practice, where at least, you know, when I was working in midwifery group practice, for example, you know, I had a huge vested interest in these women because I knew them. I'd been in their homes. I'd met their families. I knew their kids. And then I'd care for them in labor. And I would be the one picking up the pieces at a postnatal visit. So I would protect them mm. because I, my allegiance was with the woman and her family more than it was with the staff in the hospital because I was just coming in 
to do that or you know if she's having a home birth I was going to a home and just coming in to do the paperwork so but when you set it up so the allegiance really is with the workplace and the people in the tribe in the workplace then that's inevitable that the women are going to come in and you're going to you're not going to see them again so what you do to them is not and and we you know and it's really interesting then how we one of the biggest mind-blowing kind of learning that I had around this was I cared for a woman in the community and she um then I cared for in hospital and she had like quite a complicated labor and birth like not full term and there was really thick meconium the baby wasn't doing well she was probably one of those who did need just a cesarean and they were doing um you know check doing that uh, fetal blood sampling so they were basically putting a tube into a vagina, taking a cup from the baby's head, getting the blood, taking it away, coming back, saying, no, the baby's all right at the moment. And everyone knew that this baby was not going to be all right all the way through labor. It was just, you know, almost waiting for this baby to just, you know, so that was incredibly stressful. And they did this field blood sampling two or three times. And then, you know, the inevitable happened, emergency cesarean, because now it'll be left too late. And then we did a, I did a debrief in the hospital with the staff before I went to do the postnatal visit. And they tried to get the baby out so quickly that they'd cut the baby's face. Um, and when I went to visit the mom at home, you know, I'd been there and I knew this was, and I went in and her, she was fine about the cut on the baby's face, actually. She was like, well, they needed to get the baby out quickly. She was really forgiving of that. She was having flashbacks and was totally traumatized by the fetal blood sampling. Um, you know, we had to get her help for that. She was mm. absolutely broken from that, from the flashbacks, from the words that were said when that was happening and the way it was done. So I went to the debrief at the hospital and sat down and the whole debrief was around the cut on the baby's face and how could we have done that better and not, you know, the obstetrician was getting hauled over the cold for that. And I said, hold on, hold on. I said, this is not, like, this is not what the hospital's going to get sued for here. You know, that's not what's going to happen here. She actually, is, it's this thing it's the way in which you you know you cared for that woman or not cared mm. for her um, but it was just so interesting that that was their focus was this physical outcome when actually the real negative outcome was this you know psychological outcome that mm -hmm. was unnecessary yeah and it, yeah I think the psychological impacts of a of a, a traumatic birth I think are are seen as a, a of lesser importance than having a, a live baby at the end of, of labor. That, I mean, that is the sole aim and goal is to, to, to have a live baby. And of course that is, of course that's important, but it, we, I think we neglect the, the psychological effects of childbirth, um, and, uh, which is terrible. But then that's not measured. So if, you know, if a woman comes out psychologically traumatized most of the time she won't even be picked up it'll just be aren't you lucky your baby's alive get on with it and, she, mm -hmm. and she'll internalize that and she won't reach out for help most women don't mm -hmm. but if she does reach out for help or reaches a crisis point then she doesn't go back into the same service she goes into the mental health services so the obstetric service is not counting that mm -hmm. it doesn't come back onto them mm -hmm. whereas a dead baby is right you know that comes straight back onto them big time you know the they might even have the media involved if there's any concerns well they certainly will if it's home birth yeah. um it's a it's a big thing whereas all of these other things like long-term impact of hemorrhage that was caused by interventions or psychological distress or just depression and inability for women to step into motherhood be, or hormonal disruption you know that impacts on mother all of those things don't come back into the obstetric system they go into the gp or the mental health or somewhere else so they're mm. not measured they're not seen so when we're assessing risk at a at a kind of obstetric unit level, we're really assessing risk to the unit, which is the big picture. Women going to ICU, babies dying, that's it. And of course, that's really important and needs to be counted and needs to be minimized. But you're also missing, you know, other really important and impactful outcomes yeah. for families. Yeah. And 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 the the, the I don't know what it, what the rates are in Australia, but in the UK. I mean, 30,000 people, 30,000 30, women with, with birth trauma, um, that's huge a year. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's, that's a crisis. That's an epidemic, which nobody yeah, is really talking about. 
and it's that's the same globally and, and it's really in when i did i did research into childbirth trauma um and it was global research but it was primarily australia uk and the us and what we looked at um was what what women's descriptions of childbirth trauma so we were asked so we didn't say oh this is trauma this isn't trauma we basically it was in part of another survey which um and it just asked what was traumatic about your birth and then we analyzed that and two-thirds of those responses were not about my baby went to special care or I hemorrhaged or I had, it was about the things that were said and done mm -hmm. during the birth mm -hmm. those were the things the way in we, which women were I'm going to say mistreated not treated you know that it was her and these stories were horrendous mm -hmm. and when I present presented that research to conferences you know I get people getting really shitty with me and saying oh yeah but that's not Australia it's like well it is Australia or well yeah but you that's just one side of the story one side of the story being held down by four people while somebody pulls your baby out while you're shouting no that's 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 the only side of the story that I need it was just we don't want to see it because it's too confronting it's actually traumatizing to to the people in the system the obstetricians and the midwives to to know that you're part of that system it's really confronting and a lot of work that we do with the students is just around that is like mm -hmm. is that secondary trauma of seeing it and and then what do you do with that you either see it and you feel terrible and hopefully want to do something or you just have to become blind to it to survive i think this is the issue isn't it because i mean so a lot of the posts that i put on instagram and facebook um you know talk about well because I, I get a lot of messages from my followers uh, uh, the way that they are spoken to and their experiences and things that obstetricians and midwives say to them and I I do get the odd angry healthcare worker um who who really takes offense with with those stories but they are valid experiences they are real experiences and you know as a midwife Yes, you may not be saying those things to somebody, but you can't deny that it happens because it is a lived experience of somebody else. Um, and and I, I completely acknowledge that as a midwife, it must be very, very difficult to feel, to, to see that kind of thing um, and to not take it personally when it's called out because it's very hard for a midwife to, to stand up against a system like the NHS and push back on, on these things because they are, you know your 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 livelihood and your career is is at stake, um, and 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 you know societal pressures and you know the politics within the NHS and all that kind of thing. It's very hard to push back against, and I get that. Um, but we can't just dismiss these experiences because they're re they're real experiences. They are real experience. I mean, I, I personally, as a as somebody who's given birth, I've had horrific things said to me uh, when I was pregnant. Um, the dead baby card was played on me more than once. Uh, with my three children um nobody should ever ever i think use that as a way to it's like a blunt instrument to try and force somebody to agree to a uh, procedure um which i think is really wrong and and anybody says that no 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 obstetrician would say that or they, they they're doing it with best intentions that's not an excuse in in my in my mind no and i think you know i feel like midwives need to and that's part of why is really reclaim our our role and mm. who we are in birth because and and it's really difficult because midwives are an oppressed group you know they're an oppressed group themselves and particularly you know you know i've seen what's going on in the uk and it's similar here not quite as bad this you know real huge workloads mm. you know that it's they're unable to actually do their job they're unable to be with women and yeah. to advocate and to do anything other than just keep everyone alive because of the immense pressure because of the the way the system is set up and i really think we need to find a way to i don't know get out from under it um, and reclaim what midwifery was which has always been actually about intervening because mm -hmm. it's just <laughs> that's what midwives do when it's needed and not really work you know working for the community again and working for women rather than working for a big system there's actually not looking after us mm. you know the the workload 
and the hours and the lack of breaks. And then, the, you know, the, you're copying it from both ends as a midwife. And that's probably why you're getting them arcing up at what yeah. you're doing. On the one hand, you're getting, you know, you're a dangerous midwife and you're not doing your job properly because you're not, you know, doing the things that we're telling you you should be doing and you're advocating for women, basically. Mm. And then you've got, on the other hand, women are now telling their stories. So then you feel, midwives will feel that they're under attack there as well. So it's like, yeah. well, I'm getting attacked from the women saying that I'm doing a shit job and I'm traumatizing them. I'm getting attacked from my bosses for saying that I'm not doing, like, they're really in this, uh, something's gonna have to shift because, yeah. And, it, and you're right, it, this is general. You know, you can't take on board a woman expressing what has happened to her as, mm-hmm. as, as you know, as hashtag not all midwives. Yeah. But those stories need to be heard because they add weight to what the midwives are saying, which is there's yeah. a massive problem here. There's a mm. huge problem. Mm. And we need to come together to address it. Mm. We need, you know, that's how I ended the book. That We need actually solidarity. This is not going to be fixed by just consumers rising up. It's not going to be fixed by just midwives, you know, just walking out on the job or kicking off or doulas or childbirth educators. We actually all need to come together, mm. create some kind of solidarity and have each other's backs in this. And remember what's important and what it is we're trying to do and do it together stop infighting you know i see that everywhere it does my head in it's like we stop fighting amongst yourselves and how about using that energy for you know recreating something different yeah we see that with everything right now yeah, yeah. covid covid has i think exacerbated the whole them yeah. and us mentality massively between oh, yeah, huge all sorts of groups of people <laughs> yeah yeah, as humans, we like to just you know, fight amongst ourselves and not look up and go, right, who's created this? <laughs> What's going yeah, on here? Totally. Yeah, totally. Um, so have you seen much of a, a shift in terms of people free birthing in, in, in Australia? Because I think mm. I think COVID definitely has made people reassess their options and consider free birth, I think, more than they would have done pre-covid yeah we've seen uh, i mean anecdotally yes and also evidence-wise yes so Mm. there's a huge rise in and prompted a lot by covid women reevaluate some women moving into home birth women who would not have had a home birth previously women going into free birth and at the moment we've just had mandates implemented i don't know whether it's the same over there so at the moment you cannot basically practice unless you're vaccinated so there's a whole lot of private practice midwives who are not able to practice so what they're what they're reporting to me and I hope somebody's capturing this in research is that women aren't then going oh okay I'll go into hospital then because there's actually not enough private practice midwives as it is never mind if you take out the you know the proportion that don't want to be vaccinated there's even less so women aren't then going oh I'll go to hospital then what they're doing is I'll free birth then and then they're in a position where they're choosing they're not actively choosing free birth because it's something they want, which I totally, you know, free birth is fantastic for women who are actively choosing to do that because that aligns with who they are and what they want to do. When women are choosing it because they can't find what it is that they want, then that's not good because the options have gone. Mm -hmm. Um, So so we're going to see even more, you know, because that mandate's just come in. So we've just got a whole lot of midwives who have stepped down. So there'll be a whole lot of women who are, free birthing and you know to some extent for a lot of those women it will be a massive life-changing empowering experience yeah so it might actually be a positive that's terrible because there's lots of midwives without work (laughs) without midwives (laughs) but you know the i've just um i have an honest student who's just finished an amazing bit of research just she just interviewed women who'd free birthed not about the politics or why they chose just about their experience because mm. she wanted to know do they experience transition you know where you lose your shit differently in a whole, in a free birth setting where they haven't got a care provider to do the you know as we do the kind of reassuring and mm. it's okay someone not there designated to do that what happens um and it was just you know these women are having amazing amazing life affirming changing experiences through in the physiology of free birth so there's something there that i think needs to be investigated further to to inform those of us who do attend births Mm. 
because attending a birth is an intervention you know me being at a birth is an intervention um mm. even if I don't say anything and sit in the corner like I normally do the fact that I'm there is an intervention mm. um so I think we've got a lot to learn from women who actually go I don't want I don't I don't even need somebody there who can dive in and save me if need be because mm. I I have such trust in myself mm. and my capacity to know if I do need the help and pull it in and I have trust in physiology mm. I think there's an untapped resource there yeah it'll be interesting I think our mandate comes in if I'm not wrong April next year so it'll be oh, in- really that late I think I'm pretty sure I'm I'm pretty sure I may be wrong but I'm pretty sure it's April next year that, that it, it becomes the rule that you need to be vaccinated in order to work in healthcare, um, which terrifies me. I mean, I'm I'm vaccinated. I'm, I, you know, and I, but I, but I absolutely do not think that we should be erasing people's human rights uh, and their ability to choose. Um, and it terrifies me what it's going to do to maternity services or or the, or the NHS in general. The amount of people. So, we'll, so I've got a mosquito. It's gone. Um, we'll- <laughs> I'm trying to get I'm trying to I think it's already bitten me um I'm completely distracted oh yeah that's what I was going to say so will that include doulas then because here that there's this whole so anybody who's not registered so doulas um birth keepers childbirth educators who are not registered are under the radar so I think that's the same here I think I think it literally is anybody that works works within the NHS NHS employees um so yeah doulas will probably be exempt Mm. I suspect but it is worrying because we don't have enough midwives I mean that's that's the whole march for midwives movement that happened this year was because we need the government to do something because we are hemorrhaging midwives and we're not replacing them fast enough and they are not providing the support that they they want to because they, they physically can't and then we're going to bring in a mandate which is going to decimate our number of midwives even further because they won't be able to practice because they don't want to be vaccinated it just it is it isn't interesting it's the same here it is interesting isn't it because you know, the whole thing is well we've got to protect the health service all right so now you're going to create a situation where a whole lot of people are going to leave the health service mm. yeah Crazy. again it's that risk thing isn't it it's that you know the way in which we perceive risk and respond to it yeah yeah true yeah yeah i think i have to admit covid is one thing that i have not um covered in in any of my social posts just just because i find it too topical and i don't know personally i know what the benefits of, of vaccination and everything are in in for, for pregnant people and I, I i see that and there's research and it backs up but I don't know what the long-term effects are so I haven't I've, I've steered clear from the topic completely um I just think it's a very um heated topic to even attempt to <laughs> broach so I've just it is. it's it's become like religion isn't it I I haven't because I haven't had the time to really get myself all over the research and I know Melanie the midwife who's Australian has has done some YouTubes and just pulled out the research and actually worked mm. through it so I've kind of sent people into her, her direction because I've been very selfish and haven't really properly looked at it for, mm. for um, pregnancy and breastfeeding and birth. I think there's a whole lot of questions that we can't answer yet. Mm. Um, yeah, and it's just not my focus and I don't want to open that can of worms because <laughs> <laughs> just focus on the things that I kind of know something about yeah. and can... Yeah, and can influence definitely mm. yeah, the same. Um, thank you so much for for um for chatting to me today I feel like I could talk to you for hours I, there's there's like I've got a list of things that I want actually there's one thing that I wanted to actually we didn't talk about and it's going back to what we were discussing right at the beginning before before we finish up um because I bought a jumper this could sound really random I bought a jumper um for Christmas which my husband is going to gift back to me for Christmas because I bought my own Christmas present because he would never have picked it otherwise and it says <laughs> on it on the front um we are the granddaughters of the witches you didn't burn and the second I saw it I was like I'm going to buy that and I thought oh, you would love that because it just made me think of that that chapter in your book when you talk about the number of midwives who were burnt at the stake 
uh, for being witches. And I would love you to kind of just talk about that a little bit, just because I find it massively interesting, um, as well as horrifying, to be honest. Mm. <laughs> um, so do you well, want to just cover that a little bit before we before we go? Yeah, well, the witch, bur- the witch burnings and hangings, it depends on where you were as to how you were going to get killed, um, was, you know, right across Europe and hundred, possibly, you know, up to a million. It depends on you know, how you, you get the figures. Entire villages were decimated, you know, lost all of the women. Um, and the women, the women who were caught up in that were prime. I mean, I was actually, you know, the church gets the blame for it and they did a lot of it, but it was actually the lords as well. It was a money thing. It was really just a whole patriarchal, um, whole patriarchal thing, basically. The whole mm-hmm. things, a whole lot of things came together. So the women who were particularly targeted were the wise women who had healing knowledge because they were in competition with the physicians. And if they could heal somebody, then they would be using demonic powers to do that. You know, it was a sign of evil because only God can heal. Um, so they got caught. So it, it, you know, you could get accused, and once you're accused, it was kind of like that whole, you know, you. <laughs> you couldn't it was really difficult to prove that you weren't a witch once you were once you were uh, had the finger pointed so women who were in the healing arts were really at risk so they would have shut up shop or or you know potentially being killed um older women particularly older women who had land who were who were widowed because the land could be then taken off them and given back to the landlord so they copped it so um so really the kind of women in the community that weren't needed or wanted anymore were the targets men were also killed just as far you know far smaller numbers and it was primary 85 percent of it was was women Mm. which is not surprising in the kind of the patriarchal setup that was in that day um yeah and that's where a lot of that knowledge was lost the wise women went quiet because it was dangerous to to heal and to use your healing arts to make potions and to be able to and then they had all of these years of of really it was evidence-based you know they were trialing these different herbs to do different things and different ways Mm -hmm. of managing things and they had all these this huge kind of tradition of healing that was passed down from woman to woman mother to daughter which Mm -hmm. got completely suppressed I wouldn't say it got eliminated because it kind of still popped up here and there and it's still around today um and yeah and like I've heard that um that phrase before about you know we're the but we're also the daughters of the women who were burned and killed the mm. daughters that they had before that happened to them mm. um, and I think you know write and I write that in my book about how you know then the science of ancestral memories is starting to grow we're starting to see there might be some science behind that but I call that the red thread you know and mm-hmm. and deep down we know what happens when as women we speak out and it still happens it still happens today just in different ways we see it we see the the woman who speaks up and speaks out is in danger and we get burned and hung but in different ways now and that still lives within us and as women you know we have more estrogen than men and estrogen is the people pleasing hormone it's the hormone of have been able to read other people and to meet their needs and we're saturated in that during our childbearing <laughs> from from menarche to um menopause mm. and then we we shed that and then we can kind of be a little bit more bullshit but we so we're actually set up and primed almost to be good girls mm. hormonally because we need to meet the needs of a baby and to bring them up I'm, I'm talking a lot of women don't have babies but this is just our physiology yeah. um, and then add into that the threat the threats of actually not being that woman of speaking up of of I think we all kind of still feel that and I think that's playing out in the birth world which mm. is primarily women mm. um, where we're in fighting and we're we're feeling threatened and then what when you're under threat with your own nervous system feels threatened you will often fawn and we see that fawning into the obstetric you know my obstetrician said this and even my midwife said this and we see all of that playing out and it's, mm-hmm. it's partly our physiology and our history and our deep ancestral memories of what it is to be a woman in this world and to speak out and to to do something that's considered not not aligned with you know patriarchy I guess yeah yeah it's interesting isn't it it, it just shows how important it is to understand your body and us our, our physiology and psychology 
particularly oh, absolutely. and that was a yeah and that was a game changer for me in, in really being more compassionate to the midwives in the system and how they survive in the system you know when my nervous system is under attack I tend to do the fight that's kind of my natural pathways to <laughs> not not a good way to be I have to say it's not um but you know to watch and I would just get so angry and frustrated because yeah. I'd like speak up and I'd go rah, 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 and turn around and everyone else would bug it off you know let me <laughs> standing and I'd be like rah. and understanding how our nervous systems work and that you know the fitting in and fawning is a protection mm. and you know the maternity services as they are now working in them is a dangerous setting mm. and we manage you know the way we're set up physiologically is how we'll respond to that and that's why you see a lot of fitting in fawning you know berating themselves feeling mm. crap about themselves you don't see a lot of fight and I think you know it would be very different if it was male predominantly males um in that setting I think yeah. you'd see a lot more uh, you, you see it among and obstetricians are primarily female now but you mm. certainly saw it back in the day that the way that they interacted with each other was very different to the way that midwives interact with each other mm. so yes so that's a whole a whole other tangent which is just <laughs> fascinating and really explains a lot about what goes on and how we respond and it's helped me to have a lot of more compassion to my lovely friends who also do fitting in and fawning and, you know, mm. and I, that's that's actually them protecting themselves and they shouldn't yeah. have to do that yeah no I'm, I'm definitely on the same wavelength as you i <laughs> <laughs> my reaction is quite similar <laughs> I have to be mindful of it <laughs> but yeah it's, it's, it's not actually helpful a lot of the time <laughs> no it's not <laughs> yeah no definitely not at, le at least at least if you're on Facebook or, or Instagram you can go and edit your response afterwards or delete it which is quite handy sometimes <laughs> see, I just have a blanket rule I don't respond to anything or anyone on social media apart from you know maybe a nice thing or I'll thank somebody but I just don't enter discussions I don't think you can, I mm. actually don't think you can have healthy discussions in a social media forum it, no. it just can't be done definitely so just, and you can't, those for face -face. you can't no, no, no. convince somebody on, on over the internet no. um no, and I often say I'm not here people say oh you should talk, talk to obstetricians or blah, blah blah actually some obstetricians are awesome and do listen to me I'm not in the game of trying to convince anybody of anything or of converting anybody you know, I'm speaking mm. to the converted yes intentionally because I haven't got the energy to speak to those mm. who aren't mm. yeah no definitely I, I wholeheartedly agree <laughs> focus, focus on the ones who get it yes. yeah definitely <laughs> thank you so much for your time today I've really really enjoyed our chat um if anyone does want to find, well, because you've, well, obviously you've got your your um, books, which are really, really useful. So Why Induction Matters, which is one of my go-tos for my clients and um, and your Reclaiming Childbirth book. But you're, you also have a blog, don't you? Which, which is one of my, I have like three or four places that I direct all of my clients to. One is um, Sarah Wickham, Dr. Sarah Wickham, and the other one is your blog. So um, what's the website of your blog? Because I think it's a really key resource, I think, for anyone that's pregnant. Yeah, so that's Midwife Thinking. That was set up a decade ago. And I, I go in and I update posts. Rather than doing lots of posts, I'll, mm. when there's new research evidence, I go in and I'll update that post. Yeah. So Midwife Thinking. And Midwife Thinking is on Facebook and Instagram. That was kind of my first platform thing. Yeah. Oh, thank and, I, and my website is sorry and my website is rachel reed dot website yeah if you want yeah. just google rachel reed and you might be able to find me <laughs> um uh, do you do you use um instagram and facebook much as a as a platform yeah, i i do yes i do okay yeah, I, i'm not a social media i'm having i make myself do it because it's kind of the only interaction that i get often with the the people who I want to reach yeah um and I meet some amazing people doing that so yeah so Instagram and Facebook um I share research and quotes from my book and what's going on for me sometimes in my life for a little bit so yes I am on those platforms amazing okay well I'll make sure that I, I I'll when I put when the podcast episode goes live in the uh, description I'll, I'll tag all of your social media 
accounts and your website as well so that people can find you thank you so much for today i really really appreciate it i've really enjoyed chatting to you thank you and likewise oh thank you take care <laughs> bye the better birth podcast and all of its content is for educational and informational purposes only you should consult your midwife or your doctor for anything in relation to your own pregnancy and birth the opinions and the views of the guests on the Better Birth podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Better Birth or Erin Fung.